0: Christmas is a highly misunderstood uh, season in our culture. In fact, it is even misunderstood in our churches across this culture. So in light of this, I have been teaching a holiday end of the year series addressing some of the fake news around Christmas with facts of history and science and above all scripture. Now, speaking of scripture, if you would please turn in your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Matthew. And when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, find your way to the 10th chapter. As you turn there, let me introduce today's message as the final installment of this series that I have been calling the Fake Fact Christmas News Series. We've been exploring the myths that get peddled around the holiday in our world, Uh, people who come against the church, you know, December's here, and they want to talk about Christ not being real or Christmas being pagan or whatever, and we've we've been addressing those, and we've also looked at some of the things within the church that we get wrong about the holiday, and... With that, I've been wanting to just equip you to engage critically to assess your own traditions and your own sort of family culture within your home, but also I want to equip you to respond to the claims of the world and to respond both in content and in character. Let me emphasize that, content and character. Uh, Because if you have the content, if you have the knowledge, but you don't have the character, you're gonna bite people's noses off. And if you bite someone's nose off, they, they won't be able to smell your flower. And unfortunately, we live in a day where there's a lot of biting and a lot of uh, ignorance, too. And it, it just it, it muddies the name of our Lord in the, in the eyes of the watching culture. And the culture has gotten into this uh, what they're calling the cancel culture, where, where sides are just unfriending and you know, just clicking and retorting. And there's lots of anger, lots of shutdown. And this has really infected Christians who, who behave the same way the world behaves. They get loud, they get arrogant, they sound bite, uh, they go hard, and they they lack, they lack the character. They lack the love, they lack the compassion. As well, they lack the content. You'll see them getting things factually wrong. You'll see them engaging in logical fallacies. And my heart as a pastor is that our, our congregation w- would not walk like that. And so I've been offering this series as a way to kind of model how to un- uh, expose and unpack things that aren't true that are said of Christ. Of of Christmas of his church and as well to look critically just at ourselves to to assess things so that we are not Guilty of the very thing that Jesus taught his disciples with regard to those who can who can see the speck in their brother's eyes But not the log in their own now speaking of Christmas fake news and Christians responding Ignorantly and poorly almost every year. I see Christians who get ratcheted up by the phrase Xmas instead of Christmas so let me begin by way of introduction by addressing this one really quickly like the nativity This is often an in-house matter that warrants some spring cleaning at home for the church Inevitably, I'll see Christians they get all worked up when they see Xmas and it becomes a part of the war on Christmas, uh, you know the war on Christmas that buzz that gets tossed around look at what they have did they've x out Christ You know, what is that? And they get all ratcheted up about it and and to which you you know it's just a moment of ignorance because that's actually fake news in greek uh, which the new testament was written in in greek in the new testament the word for christ is a greek word christos and it begins with the greek letter key which looks like an x it is essentially the same letter as it is in the english letter of x so originally XMIS was simply an abbreviation of Christos, if you can see that there. It's just an abbreviation. So originally, Xmas was simply an abbreviation to say, you know, key uh, mass, uh, Christ mass. There's no grand conspiracy to take Christ out of Christmas. It's just an abbreviation. If someone called me Matt instead of Matthew, I don't, you know, bite their head off. What are you, what are you trying to take, you know, few out of Matthew or whatever? It's just abbreviating now uh to be clear i do think there are forces in our culture that would be happy to x out christ and have a secular holiday mass but you know nevertheless we we still have it as a federal holiday we still have a lot of cultural attention uh and and uh, you know with the celebration of christmas in north america and we have such attention that inevitably every year our christmas eve service our christmas services have people who just come They're curious, you know, they see, you know, Christians doing stuff and they want to know what's going on. And inevitably you have people who just show up at church. Christmas and Easter, in fact, they're some of the most, the most popular days of attendance in in the year for people who aren't believers who want to come and see what's going on. So let's take it as an opportunity to make sure that we know our facts before we start jumping on people. You trying to ex Christ out of Christmas? You're like, no dude, you should know that's the first letter, Christos and the guy that you worship. Now, speaking of things misunderstood by the world and the church, another quick one that I'd like to address is this whole Santa Claus thing. He's kind of been a design feature on my graphics. You know, there he is with his flying reindeer here. uh, You know, and so I'll save it for last to talk about old old Santa Claus. Who's Santa Claus? A a lot of folks get really ratcheted up about this sort of thing. Now, a lot of folks think that Santa Claus is just a secular trick to draw attention away from Jesus. And while the commercialization of Christmas is... An affluent north american cultural thing to be sure and we're sort of guilty of this commercialization and and all the rest it, it's important to remember that historically santa is a real figure in history saint nicholas was actually a devout believer in jesus he was born in the 200s in modern-day turkey he inherited wealth from his parents and he used the wealth in acts of charity caring for the poor, giving presents to children he was known for. There's even a tradition of him fighting sex traffickers to free young girls. He was a very active man for justice in the culture, a, a very active man for the worship of Christ. He became a bishop in the early church in Turkey. He is celebrated in global Christianity as a hero of faith, a servant of the poor, a bringer of gifts to the children. Uh, uh, you know, and more. Here's a picture of him, a 13th century picture of St. Nicholas from St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. He was thrown in jail for his faith. He was oppressed for his faith. Under the pagan Roman ruler Diocletian, uh, as they were destroying churches, imprisoning and executing Christians, uh, St. Nicholas suffered under his hand. Now, thankfully, uh, Diocletian dies and St. Nicholas outlives him. And thankfully, St. Nicholas lived to the day that Constantine would come to power and Christianity would become tolerated, uh, Edict of Milan, and eventually would would actually gain much sway in the Roman Empire. uh, Such sway that the great council of Nicaea that was called under Constantine, uh, gathering together all the church leaders, uh, because St. Nicholas outlived Diocletian, he was actually able to be a part of Uh, the, The era where Christians were tolerated and be a part of the great historic Council of Nicaea Now the Council of Nicaea was called to address some of the heresies that were creeping in the church It was a fake news council if you will there was fake news going around about Jesus and whatnot And so they called all the church leaders together to say hey, what's the deal? You know on these things that are rumbling around the Empire with regard to the faith one of the big heresies of the day was tied to a man named Arius who denied the deity of Jesus uh, as Christians we believe there's one God who's Father, Son and Spirit. Those three persons, Father, Son and Spirit and Spirit share the same essence or nature or in the Greek what they would call ousia. So there's one ousia. There's there's one God. There's one divine being, uh, but he there's three persons to the divine being, Father, Son and Spirit. Now, the son is the one who incarnated, who becomes the historical Jesus of Nazareth. So we say Jesus of Nazareth is fully God and fully man. He's fully God because he is the son who's one with the Father and Spirit. He's fully man because he took on a human nature, which we celebrate at Christmas. Now, Arius denied the deity of Jesus. Uh, He denies the, the triunity of God, and he denies the deity of Jesus. They stood against the biblical record, Arius and his followers that were called the Arians, they stood against the idea that, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit shared the same nature. Now, the word that is used in, in the Greek at the time for same is a word that we still use today in various ways. It's the word homo. Uh, so homo means the same. Now, ousia is the Greek word that gets used in reference to the one being or the one nature or the one substance of God. So Christians believed in what's called homoousia. Homoousia. However, Arius and the Arians, they contradicted, fake news, the homoousia doctrine, and they advanced the doctrine that is known as homoousios. Now, hear the difference in these terms. You have homoousios, which is the orthodox biblical way of talking about God, versus homoousias, homo homoi. The difference here is actually one iota. That's actually where we get the phrase, uh, you know, there not being one iota of a difference. But in this case, the iota, of course, is a huge difference. Either he is homo, the son is the same uh, with the father in in their nature, usios. Or he is homoi, as Arius and the Arians said. Homoi is a word that means similar to or like. Well, there's a big difference between being like God and being God. And so there was a big brouhaha of this. And the Council of Nicaea gets together to deliberate on this. And, and uh, of course, they affirm what the Bible teaches, the homoousios doctrine. Now, back to Saint Nick. There are rumors in history that Saint Nick actually lost his temper with the homoousios fake news, and he is said to have slapped an Arian or Arius himself in the mouth uh, over this. So, I find this just uh, really fascinating. And there's artwork of, of Saint Nicholas slapping Arius that goes back hundreds of years Here's a late medieval Russian Orthodox fresco of St. Nicholas slapping Arius in the mouth at the First Council of Nicaea. Not exactly what you think of when you think of uh, Santa Claus, you know, slapping theological heretics. Uh, Our American culture has eroded this history, but around the world there are thousands, thousands of churches that are named after St. Nicholas, and thanks to the internet and the blessed memers, God bless the memers who help us get through COVID. There has been a resurgence of awareness to the historical figure, theologian, defender of the poor, uh, liberator of sex traffickers and churchmen, St. Nicholas. Lots of funny memes. Let me show you a couple before we jump into our study this morning. Uh, These are great. Starts a fight at ecumenical council. I love that one, right? Is Santa gonna have to slap a heretic? He's got Arius on the list. Deck the halls, try deck the heretic. Uh, We have ho, ho, homoousios, now you know why that's funny. Arius's face when Saint Nick slapped him, got Keanu there. The Batman and Robin memes that fly around, you got Robin. Christ is not divine, he would have been created by heresy. Uh, And then the last one, the kid asks Santa, he's on Santa's lap, homoousios or homoiousios? And Santa goes, what? He goes, you're not the real Saint Nicholas. I love that one. So all of this to say that Santa Claus is not the guy popularized in the Coca-Cola ads in the 1900s. Around the same time in the 1900s is where the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer jumps on scene. No, he's a historical figure. He suffered for his faith. He quite literally slapped fake news in the mouth. And so in the spirit of Saint Nick, uh, you might say that we've been metaphorically slapping the fake news in the mouth uh, with this series. In today's message, I want to consider uh, a phrase that is used around Christmas, peace on earth, and we often say it in a way that lacks meaning, and we often say it in ways that goes against what the Bible actually teaches with regard to uh, Christ and peace. So uh, let's think about this peace on earth uh, phrase that gets uh, tossed around and here i bring you to the title of today's sermon peace on earth question mark what what is this about now let's jump into things we've been talking first point on your outline about claims and deceptions we've uh you know we've been we've been unpacking these things we just saw how saint nicholas is distorted in pop culture and how many don't know the real history of the tradition of the figure In this series we've spent a good amount of time exploring the empty claims of critics who've said certain things about the holiday and certain things about the historic figure jesus and uh, those things are fake news we've looked at those the 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 claim that the virgin conception is just taken from pagans and that the the celebration of christmas in december is just you know pagan winter solstice stuff uh we've we've looked at all of this and debunked it all Guess what? They actually do this with Santa, too. There are those who claim that Christians hijacked the Norse god Odin, who has a long white beard and is known for giving out gifts in winter pagan celebrations, uh, particularly one known as Yule, and they say, oh, you guys stole, you know, Santa's Odin. You're like, for Pete's sake, he's a historical figure. What are you talking about? The pagan parallelomania is just wild. It's conspiracy theory, but alas, people eat it up. They hear it, they click it, they like it, they repost it. Along with the outsider attacks, though, we've been doing the in-house cleaning. We've looked at unbiblical angels, for example, that mirror New Age religions. We've, we've looked at ancient archaeology, considering you know, what, the, what the nativity would have looked at and how we've got some of that wrong. Now this morning, let's look, about, let's, let's look at Christmas peace. I ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. If you would, find your way to verse 16. Look at what the Lord says here. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. This is a section of Jesus where he's training his disciples and he's training them specifically to be discerning, to know how to act in the presence of fake news. Uh, you, know, we, you know, probably shouldn't be slapping people in the mouth and being jerks and stuff like that. He wants them to know how to act. You've got to be innocent as doves. You've got to be shrewd like serpents. There are going to be people who are going to say stuff about the Lord and about his people, and we we need to know how to engage that. In this series, we've been talking about how to engage certain things in the culture. In the first installment of this sermon, I talked to you about how we respond to culture. We can reject it, we can receive it, we can reassess it, and we can redeem it. We saw our calling as disciples in this sermon series, how we get into the culture, how there's certain things that we have to say, no, that's wrong, and certain things that we might use as a part of contextualization. We looked at the book of Acts and we saw how early Christians were engaging the world, contextualizing, engaging the world with compassion, and also engaging the world in direct conflict to deconstruct things that stood against the knowledge of God in Christ. We saw in the book of Acts how tough were, times were tough. We saw the disciples... Uh, uh, Being trained we saw that they they were in the gospel accounts trained by Jesus And we see that their training stood the test of time in the book of Acts now here We are in Matthew and we're looking at some discipleship training This is a training manual from Jesus for the would-be disciples and for the real-deal disciples Draw your eyes back at the text and look at verses 19 and 17 You see Jesus tells them it's gonna get ugly the haters and the secular powers will oppress them Look at look at verse 21. It says that it will impact families and they'll start turning on each other Fake news does that we see it in our day fake news comes and it divides families You you have family members unfriending people and hurting each other and, and friendships that get strained Jesus encourages them to endure look at verse 22 and he tells them in verse 23 not to let it derail the mission of bringing his Message from city to city you see that in 22 and 23 And then he reminds his disciples that he was persecuted, so if he was persecuted, they too will be persecuted. Draw your eyes at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher, and a slave become like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? They, they said fake news about Jesus, so they're going to say it about you. They called him Beelzebub, which is a name for Satan. So we should expect that they're going to call us stuff too. In verse 26, Jesus says, do not fear them. And he tells them again, stay on mission. Uh, we need to hear that. We've got a mission. No one else has this mission. There are other people that do acts of charity, there are other people that do soup drives, there are other people that you know, help with this or that, or other people who do po- politics or this or that. We got, the one thing, we got one thing that no one else has, the preaching of the gospel. Stay on mission, don't let the divides of the culture wrap you into them. Verse 27, what does he say? He says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak it in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Jesus was preparing his disciples to stay on mission, to confess him in a cold world. That moves to the next point on the outline. In the face of claims and uh, deceptions, we need to have confession and discipleship. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, we, we read, "Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father, who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven." The context here is that Jesus is speaking about what it means to be his follower, or rather to be his disciples. From chapter 8 through chapter 10, just in terms of the context of where we are in Matthew, we read of eight miracle stories. There's actually nine. Uh, you can uh, do that as a homework this week, see if you can identify them. And in these miracles, he's revealing who he is. And then he, he gathers his disciples together here in this section, and he's, he's g- going to send them out into the harvest to go proclaim this message. He's gathered them and now he's scattering them to go out. Look at the very beginning of the chapter. If you would turn to to chapter 10 and just look at the opening of it, verses 1 through 5. Notice what what is revealed there in verses 1 through 5 as he summons them together and you get their names and verse 5 He's instructing them. He's sending them out and he's instructing them Jesus commissions them in this section of scripture to go out spreading the news of who he is the Messiah of Israel He restricts their itinerary you see there uh, for these Jewish disciples to go specifically to the Jewish people because at that time the kingdom of God the kingdom of Israel that the Messiah exclusively holds authority to, was being offered to Israel. Uh, The king, Jesus, was offering the kingdom to the people of Israel, but they rejected the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom they declined because the king they did not desire. They would rather have Herod and Rome, the status quo corrupt powers, than the true king and the rightful heir of the throne of David. The thing is, this was all a part of God's plan, though. God chose to use their rejection to bring about redemption. The rejected king would die and redeem his people, and his people would be ready to be disciples, because he trained them to be that. And disciples, what they do is they make disciples. So they carry on the very mission that Jesus did. When Jesus cried out to his father uh, before the cross about completing the work that had been given to him, it was this work of discipleship. And so just as he did that, they go and do that, and those they do that for, they go and do that. From Jerusalem to Los Angeles, that's how we got here. Discipleship was what Jesus was all about. That is our marching orders. It is our commission. Many refer to it as the Great Commission. And we know it's a commission, not a suggestion. This this is mandatory. It is commanded of our Lord. We see in the book of Acts how they followed that out. The commission, as it is given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll put the references there in front of you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. At the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts 1, 4 through 8, again, it is repeated. This is important. We need to hear this. We constantly need to be reminded of this. Jesus didn't want to make mere believers. He didn't want to make church attenders. Of course, believing in him and participating in his church should go hand in hand. That said, not mere believers or churchgoers, Jesus wanted disciples. So when I I meet people who claim to be Christian but they don't attend church, I have to fundamentally, because of the Bible, go back... ...and preach the gospel to them because I just assume they don't know who he is if, he's, if they're not with his people. They go hand in hand. It is important. We haven't been saved to be mere believers on the sidelines. Or, or, or even uh, on the other flip to assume that just because you are attending that that means you're an actual disciple. This raises the question, of course, what is a true disciple? Jesus warns about false disciples, you know, fake news, and he also, you know, teaches about the real disciples, real news. It, what is a real disciple? Is, is a disciple something different than a Christian? People often ask, who are new in the faith, what are the differences in these terms? Well, it ought not to be. Christians are disciples, disciples are Christians. The word disciple was the self-designation of Jesus' followers. In the Greek, it is the word mathetes. And methetes is a word that means a devoted learner, a follower of a rabbi, a teacher, a devotee, uh, one one who has pledged allegiance to a mathetes. It's like an apprentice who's working under a master and learning the trade and is devoted. Methetes, the Hebrews referred to them as the talmudim. Talmudim means disciples. Uh, The word that that, that Christian that gets used uh, the first time it appears in the book of Acts, it's used as a pejorative. Uh, we might say it's sort of like Jesus freaks or something like that. And the disciples, the Methetes, the Talmudim, when they were mocked as being Christians, they took that term of mockery and wore it as a badge of honor. And so Christians were disciples. They were mocked and ridiculed for their faith because they took their faith seriously. They, they, there, there, was, there wasn't a little bubble, you know, to fill in on a census survey on Christian No, no, no. They took their faith seriously. It's not a little bubble on a dating website. I mean, I'm Christian. I'm looking for another Christian. No, it's not a check that you just mark. It's something that you are. It's something that you're surrounded with. Jesus didn't save you and put you in a little corner or put you on, on a little shelf somewhere. He saved you and has placed you in his family to be a part of a church that's making disciples. End, end, end of it. Period. That's, what, that's that simple. Brass tacks. So if you're not in community, you're not making disciples, then there's going to be an issue because these are the marching orders of his people. A disciple is someone who is intentionally organizing their life in such a way to become like their master. Let me say that again. It's worth committing to memory. If someone says, what's a disciple? It's someone who is intentionally organizing their life in such a way to become like their master. If you want to be a tennis player, what do you do? You have to intentionally organize your life in such a way to become like ex tennis player. You can't say, oh, well, you know, I bought a book about tennis. Yeah, how's that going? Well, you know, I got a book, you know, I got a couple books about it, you know. Oh, okay, you know, uh, well, I watch tennis on TV. Well, yeah, well, how good are you at actually playing tennis, right? Uh, if, if you, if you want to be a pianist, you want to play the piano, you have to intentionally organize your life in such a way that you become like ex-pianist. You have, you have to do the things that they did to get there. You have to emulate that. You have to do that. You have to become a part of a piano community where you have a culture that's training you in this. If you want to be a dentist, you want to be a dad, you want to be a mom, you, you have to find, okay, this person is a good mom, I'm going to follow them around and intentionally organize my life in such a way that I become like this mom. And be, being a part of a community of moms, because th- that's a part of your training. So too, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to intentionally organize your life in such a way to become more like him. And that means you have to be a part of his people, Because he himself was a part of a discipleship community, a community specifically that is a proper local church. The call that Jesus gave was a call to follow him with his people in his church, submitting to him in his word. And in our culture, this has become so watered down. It's been reduced to just making a little prayer. You want to make a decision, repeat this little prayer after me. Uh, you, you know, so we make a plea, you know, you don't want to go to hell, do you? You know, don't you want to go to heaven? You know, and even the atheist is like, well, I mean, yeah, heaven sounds like a cool place. I want to go there. Repeat this prayer after me. Make a decision. We have all this decisionism in our culture where the gospel has been reduced to a ticket to heaven. And then you could just go on living any way that you want. And so the invitations to come to jesus in our culture they they lack the, the 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 power of the gospel itself and they they lack anything any semblance to what we see in the preaching of the gospel in the bible the invitations of jesus to the lost were direct calls to a costly commitment a direct call to confession a public faith it's a public faith there are no secret service christians if someone denies christ and says that they don't believe, they don't care to obey, they can't possibly meet the basic characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus. Jesus' teachings aim to separate the real from the fake. Speaking of separating, draw your eyes back at the text. Find Find your eyes on verse 34 in the text. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Jesus speaks directly to the dividing of human relationships, even the most intimate of them, family. So let's move from claims and deceptions, confession and discipleship to this third point, Christ and division. Having read verses 34 through 37, here we see that we get another Christmas fake news matter. Now, to the question of the, of, the, of the message today, peace on earth, uh, wh- what are we getting at here? During Christmas, we often hear people talking about peace on earth. The Christmas tagline a lot is just that peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Now, this, of course, comes from a verse in the Bible, one of the names given to the Messiah in uh, the prophet uh, of, of Isaiah, uh, he, he spoke of the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. Let me put this in front of you, Isaiah 9:6, so you can see it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And we will be called, and he will be called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In fact, our sister Madison led us in a song this morning. We were singing this section of the prophet Isaiah. When Christ comes, though, we don't see peace. In fact, we see war all around him. We sing the song Silent Night, but we also could remix it Violent Night. There was violence all around him. And you guys saw recently, I remixed one, so maybe we'll get a violent night next. But around the, t- around the birth of Jesus, you got Herod running around murdering innocent children, trying to stop the Prince of Peace from coming. You have turmoil and conflict and oppression. The, the, whole, the whole go back to Bethlehem for the census is an is a overreach of a corrupt government that's imposing its power on people to literally make them migrate to... You know, think of the jobs and the businesses and things that are lost when you're literally forcing them to go. You got to go to your hometown and what are we, what are they taxing you for? They want your money and this is a puppet government at the time that oppresses the Jewish people. Think of, think of the darkness, the war, the civil unrest. And so the scripture, when it speaks of peace, we, we must note it certainly wasn't a physical peace, it was a spiritual peace. There's a subsequent peace as well when we think of the great eschaton and when the Christ child returns. Furthermore, Jesus never said that he came to bring peace. I mean, again, look at verse 34. Let's read it again. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Dang. Uh, you know, we, we should make this into a Christmas mug next year for our giveaway. And have like, you know, all these cute like trees and reindeers or whatever. And then on one side, it's like, I did not come to bring peace. Jesus, you know, Uh, Christmas is a celebration of his coming. And Christ says, I did not come to bring peace. He said, what did you come to do? I came to divide. I came to divide. I'm, I'm dividing. I'm dividing families, homes, relationships. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Where is your allegiance? Are you with his people? Or Not as God of course. He knows what's going to happen as God of course He knows the problem of creation the one God whose father son and spirit made the world he created the world He loved the world and the world turned on him as a result of the world turning on him as a result of humanity rebelling against God this rebellion is set within the heart of every human child born Just in the same way that you might inherit your parents' genes and you go, oh man, you kind of look like your, your father. We all look like our father, Adam. We all look like our mother, Eve. We are rebels at heart. We are depraved. And so humanity rejects the light of God. And because humanity rejects the light of God, it divides. And even in the most intimate of relationships. Because we are born sinful. And so literally literally the work of christ is to divide and to break down those and to say whose team are you on in verses 35 and 36 jesus quotes micah the prophet micah the seventh chapter in the sixth verse if you're taking notes in this section of micah 7 6 the prophet micah describes the sinfulness and the rebellion of the people of israel in the days of king ahaz which makes a point that insofar as jesus's disciples were holding fast To his prophetic word, they were aligning themselves with the prophetic word of the ancients of of Israel. That is to say, you're on the right side. Unlike the people in the days of Ahaz and unlike the false prophets who peddled a message of of peace, peace, when there was no peace, look at what the prophet Jeremiah said about the false prophets and the priests. I'll put it in front of you. Jeremiah chapter chapter 6. Oh, I guess my slide. There we go. Chapter 6, verse 13. For, for, for from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And, and from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, 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 peace but there is no peace. You're, you're crying out peace, but you don't have peace. The point here is to show that the, the disciples, look, humanity is depraved. Everyone's greedy for gain. Even the priests and the prophets are corrupt. Your your families that should know love and your families that should love one another will turn on you when you become serious in your faith in God. Inevitably, in Jesus' context, this was true because it was not a Christian culture. Now, this isn't universal, of course. If you're being raised by Christian parents, hopefully your coming to faith in him won't divide your home. It will unify it. But understand, this was not a Christian culture. There was no Christian culture at that point. This is Jesus and the disciples. They're going to be, they're, the disciples are going to go on and make disciples. They're going to be persecuted for hundreds of years. Uh, as I already made mention of, you know, St. Nicholas and, you know, uh, Nicaea and Constantine. Christianity would become tolerated. But for hundreds of years, you wouldn't have a Christian culture. And so becoming a Christian would cost you your life. If, if, you, have, if you are a, a Middle Eastern or if you are of Asian descent... And, and you have family and friends in homelands where there's that hostility, you know that's the reality. Coming to Christ, we hear stories of this all the time in missions reports of, of children literally being poisoned by their parents because they became followers in Him. It was a hostile culture. And in our culture, becoming a Christian, it really doesn't cost us the same way because we have such an infused Christian culture. And so when we experience any opposition, we're, because we're so privileged in this culture, we end up going Karen on people. You know, like the Xmas thing, or the you know the Starbucks red cups. You know, you know, what happened to the reindeers? Oh, are you trying to cancel me? You know, we're oh, we're being persecuted. Oh, we we have no idea of this kind of persecution. This is an honor shame culture that Jesus is teaching in, where where if you shame your family, oh my goodness, there's there's no repair but by the grace of God. And in their culture, family is everything. These, these are families that live for the family. It's not, our, it's not our culture where you have families all spread out and don't live together. I mean, they literally live in the same home together. They, they raise their families together. They would never leave. They're, they're close. The idea of a family being drawn against itself, that was huge. What Jesus says is counter-cultural to them. What do you mean a mom is going to go against her daughter? What what sort of a thing is that? And now Jesus drives home the point in verse 37. Look at what he says in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you want to be his follower, if if, if you want to come to him, you want to be saved by him, You want to repent of your sin? You want to have everlasting life? You are going to have opposition. If you if you want to follow after me, he uses really hyperbolic language here. Of uh, you know uh, uh, what's going to take place? You have to love me more than anything else. Where is your allegiance? You might say, but Jesus, aren't we commanded to respect our parents? Aren't we commanded to love our families? And yes, yes. But again, the background of this remark and its rhetorical force are critical for our understanding. So listen, listen. The meaning of hate carries a comparative force with it, literally as it's written here, rhetorically, as he would have uttered it. Let me say it again. The meaning of hate carries a comparative force. The idea is not that you should literally hate your family, but that in comparison to Jesus, if you were forced to choose, the winner in that choice would, of course, be Jesus. The idea here is that Jesus is to be loved more than anything else And it's it's so intense that when you compare it to something else, it looks like you hate that other thing because it's that intense. Moreover, in a first century context, to decide for Jesus, to make a decision for Jesus, it actually would mean that you would be deciding against your family. Those who love family more would not even consider Jesus. And we see instances of that in the gospel. You know, the let the dead bury their dead and, and instances where people want to follow after him, but they're not willing to give up those relationships. It means that no relationship comes in the way of your relationship with Christ and his people. Even the most intimate and the most noble. Notice again who Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to his disciples. You might say, well, th- those are disciples, those are the faithful guys, you know. Uh, chapter 10 begins naming out their names. So, maybe this teaching is just for them and not for regular old Christians like us. That's for the super Christians. No, no, no this is for our, uh, the regular. Janes and Joes, this is for all of us. Let me give you the parallel teaching of Matthew, uh, what, what Matthew has contained here in the teaching of Jesus. I'll give you the parallel from the Gospel of Luke. Here in Luke chapter 14 verse 25, if I could get some help on the PowerPoint please, Luke chapter 14 verse 25 I would like them to see. It says there in Luke 14, 25, the large crowds were going along. He turned and he said to them. Now look at what he says in the next verse. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He says the same thing here in Luke that he says in Matthew. Why is Jesus so strong about this? Why do the Gospels both contain this in Matthew and Luke? Because he wants to chase away the uncommitted. Unlike our seeker-sensitive churches today that water down doctrine that you know, get smoke, uh, smoke machines and light shows and they go all big, and they're just trying to attract as many people to get in, and they sort of hide the hard teachings of Jesus. You no, know, don't talk about that, they, they won't wanna come, or you know, let's, let's, let's decorate and do all this stuff and we'll do these things to attract people to come. Jesus says, no, nah, I'm, I'm not being seeker sensitive. I'm not trying to get people to come. I'm not trying to trick people to follow me. I'm not trying to water it down. And then later tell them who I really am. I, I'm, I'm chasing away the uncommitted from the gate. You understand that about Jesus? He wanted to drive away the phonies. He didn't want. The, he didn't want them because he didn't want his church to be affected by them. This is the start of the church. He's preparing and training them to start the church. Christianity wouldn't have spread through. Rome and Africa and Asia and Europe and gotten into uh, South America. It would have never gotten here if he had a bunch of fair-weather followers from the start. So he chased them away with the call of commitment. The point is Jesus has no concept of disciples versus Christians. He has no concept of what we call the nominal Christian. Nominal means in name only. He has no concept of spectators who are just there to watch attenders who are just there to mark mark the list that they attend uh, or, or let alone those who don't attend or haphazardly attend he has no concept of that the thing that i want you to see here is that jesus's message to his disciples was identical to what he told the crowds this wasn't for super christians you see discipleship and evangelism were the same the christians were not super christians or whatever disciples are not a higher class of christians All Christians should be intentionally organizing their lives in such a way to become more like Christ and being faithful in in regular participation in his church. Oh, I'm just saved, you know, I don't do all of that stuff. Well, I would beg to differ. I think the scripture calls into question your salvation. And I'm I'm afraid often in a culture like ours where we have a Bible Belt and Christianity has such affluence that it has, and with the secret sensitive movement that we have churches filled with people who are not saved. Matthew chapter seven, we began our, our service with. So if you were late, you missed the public reading of God's word this morning, which was important for, for us in this sermon today. In Matthew chapter seven, uh, he, he talks about the narrow path. He talks about the, the wide road. And he says the wide road, the broad, it leads to destruction. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, actually knows the Lord. Or rather is known by the Lord in verse 23 he casts uh, them out with this sobering line I never knew you and with the new year before us it is a time for self reflection and resolution there are there are people who sit in churches for years and they are far from him Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31 if you continue in my word then you're my real disciple In, in John 15 8 he tells them my true disciples will bear fruit read then what jesus tells them in luke 14 verse 27 whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple jesus gets at the cross and duty which brings us to the next point on the outline we've looked at claims and deceptions confession and discipleship christ and division now cross and duty draw your eyes back at the text matthew 10 verse 38 whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me what does this mean? Taking up your cross is a calling of death. In our culture, we see crosses as fashion. They're kind of cool. You got people wearing crosses. And uh, I don't know anecdotally, when I see someone wearing a cross, I, I love to always, I just use it. Oh, oh, so you're a follower of Christ? You know, they go, what? You know, nine out of 10 are like, well, what are you talking about? Well, you have a cross on it. Oh, you know, is that what this is? I don't know. I just look pretty to me. You know, I belong to my grandma. I don't I don't know. You know, what? what is that thing? You know. Uh, one time, I, this is so sobering to me, we had s- someone who was here and after the service they'd never been to church before and, and they said, well, what's the big T on the wall for, you know? I'm like, the uh, T? That, that's a cross, you know? So, in our culture, it, it, its meaning has been lost. The cross was a sign of governmental oppression on slaves and the poor. They executed slaves and poor people on crosses insurrectionists to the empire they executed on the cross. It's a symbol of torture. If, if we had, uh, you know, an electrical chair up on the wall, it would actually communicate better. Granted, people would be so, like, w- cognitive, you know, cognitive dissonance, like, Did, is this death row records? What's going on? You know, like, if you had just an electric chair up there, people would go, oh, okay, I see what that is. That's, a, that's the power of the state to take your life Rome is a corrupt government taking the life of innocent people. And, and, and so too the Christ who dies on the cross, he is innocent. And that's the point, because the innocent dies for the guilty in order that we, the guilty, can have his innocence. Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to take up the cross. You, you have to be willing to take up the cross. And in our culture, I'll hear people, you know, oh, I'm taking up my cross, I'm taking take up my cross, you know, my car is not working, i got to take up my cross. My leaky roof, I got to take up my cross. My mother-in-law taking up my cross, you know. Uh, my co-worker taking up my cross. My spouse, I'm taking up my cross. In the first century, to take up your cross, it wasn't a leaky roof, a mother-in-law, or a believing spouse. It, it meant that you, you were on death row. You were going to die for this. Now look at verse 39. Draw your eyes in the text. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He was found, his life will lose it. You possess your, your life, you hold on to your life, you don't let go of your life, you want, you want to keep safe, you want to be liked, you, you don't want others around you to accuse you of anything, you don't want to be challenged, you want to play it cool, you don't want to make any fast moves. You know, you, is, that, is that what you're living for? Now the catch, of course, is that we don't possess our lives, we belong to God. As our catechism Reminds us at the very beginning of the catechism, we've got a new year before us So we're going to be on this very soon that we are not our own But belong body and soul both in life and in death to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ It, it doesn't our lives don't belong to us Have you ever given someone good advice and then watch them go and do the opposite? Have you had that phenomenon happen in your life you or even your kids you tell them something and they don't do it and you know and then they reap the consequences of it and it bums you out when the, when the bad that you hoped they would avoid happens to them. You tried. You, you tried to warn them. Hey, hey, parent, if you don't do this with your kids, your kids are going to suffer. And then it happens. You go, I tried to tell you. Hey, hey, mom. Hey, dad. Hey, neighbor. Hey, friend. If you, if you don't stop doing this, this is going to happen. And you watch it happen. You tried to warn them. Hear Christ's warning to you. Hear Christ's word to you don't hold on to your life let go of it in his name this is what following christ is all about letting go and that's a hard thing isn't it indeed it is an impossible thing we fail we fail and fail and fail at letting go we we are not we're not worthy but behold the gospel jesus did this for us his family and his friends would forsake him his friends would deny him judas would stab him in the back. His, his own family, we see in the gospel accounts, were at odds with him. Well, you know He had to remind them, I'm doing my father's business. A family divided, uh, friends divided. Jesus experienced all of this and he never forsook his father. He never forsook the mission. And so we throw ourselves at his mercy that we receive his life on our account. And we preach the gospel to ourselves lest we walk out of this place in guilt and shame, have your guilt and shame lifted. You've held on to your life. You haven't been walking after him as you should, but he has done it for you. Throw yourself at his mercy. Cry out in repentance and faith. Understand salvation is not an experiment. Salvation is a lifelong commitment. It is a daily calling of repentance. It is is not a, 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 hey, try Jesus. Hey, just try it out. You should try being a christian try it for a week you know like it's some workout trend or juicing detox cleanser or something like that give it a 10-day trial and see how he fits no it's a call to let go of yourself and you making decisions and he being the one who decides for you by his word salvation is lifelong transformation to be sure it is a gift to be received and secured a work of god in justifying us but it is a work nonetheless that is to be lived out those who would tell us that a person can be a Christian without being a disciple, without being a part of his church, are deceived. They are deceived. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Philippians, in reference to holy living, he says this, the gospel is not something which we add to our lives, it is rather something which should entirely dominate them. The Christian life, therefore, is not merely a modification of the natural life, it is a new life. And Christians do not merely add something into their lives. They are people who have been changed at the center. They are entirely different. That is what Jesus is calling them to. Not not just to put him first on the list, but to get rid of the list and to make him the one. In this sense, we see Jesus' mission is not a mission of peace on earth. It was a mission to divide. He's going to divide your life up if you follow after him. He's going to divide the real from the fake. In fact, in his return, he will literally do that. In the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, we see him literally dividing the sheep from the goats. Division, not peace. It was not a quiet night. It was not a silent night. A war had begun and was brewing when Christ was born. And alliances were forming. The empire was forming. The shepherds in the field came to observe. The soldiers were searching to destroy. There were two sides, light and darkness, Which one are you in? It's not exactly peaceful. You know, peace is an elusive thing. If you were here last year, I did a sermon series for Advent on peace and Pax Romana, Christi and Pax Romana. You know, mankind has never known peace since our fall. Peace, friends, is not the absence of war. Peace is not refraining from shooting someone who's trying to steal your car. Peace is not avoiding a fight with your spouse by walking away from a hot topic. Peace is not uh, in the stillness of a mountain meadow or in the, the steam of a cowgon bath. Take me away. I'm, I'm dating myself there. Peace is not in the disjointed thinking of the new age, when you're listening to some soft music and sipping your tea and sitting on crystals or whatever. Our municipalities have laws against disturbing the peace. Nations have long been at odds with each other. They talk still about peace. When and where are they going to have peace? How can they have peace? They don't find peace. No peace treaty that man has ever devised has been kept. You see, in this earth, there is no peace, and here is why. Because in the heart of man, there is no peace. And why is that? Because men are not at peace with God. Man was made to worship his creator, and when man rejected the creator, this went away. And, and with it, peace. And, and, and with it, harmony. And with it, love. As long as there is sin, peace cannot happen. Epictetus, a philosopher in the first century, wrote in reference to the Pax Romana, That the Roman peace that existed in the civilized world at the time at which uh, Caesar boasted and I quote while the Emperor may give peace from war on land and sea he is unable to give peace from passion peace from grief peace from envy he cannot give peace of the heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace oh the philosopher struck right at the heart of the problem the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart and that's where the gospel comes in and God offers us a new heart and, and everyone wants peace, yet few will seem to actually possess it in any substantive form because they're trying to do it apart from him. And, and, and what he does in saying, I have come to bring not peace but war, is to expose this, to pull back this pseudo-fake peace. This is what Christ is getting at. Present-day Christianity, by and large, ignores these hard warnings. The prevailing view that, of what constitutes saving faith today continues to grow broader and more shallow while the portrayal of Christ in preaching and witnessing becomes fuzzy. Uh, Christian preaching sounds like TED Talks with Jesus sprinkles on it. It's all watered down. We've seen this crazy in the last couple of years with all the politics and whatnot, where the pulpit has turned into the evening news commentator on, on the respective right or the left. They're doing anything and everything besides preaching Christ and besides challenging those who have gathered in the local church to consider, are you in him? Or do you have a false profession of faith? Have you truly come to him? Have you truly been changed by him? Do you have a new heart or is it just one of stone? Is Jesus just something that you have added on to your life but you have not made him your whole? Hear his word today. Hear his call to you today, dear friend. Come to him now. Cry out to him. Ask for his forgiveness. He is so loving, so kind, so forgiving. He will reject none who come to him in repentance and faith. There is not a sin that you have done that he will not forgive. There isn't anything that you have done that will make him love you less or love you more. He offers himself fully and completely to you, and in turn, he asks the same of you. Come fully and completely to me. Come fully and completely to me. Narrow is the gate, and what? Few will find it. All of this to say, it brings me to the final point on the outline, Christmas devotion. Here's the question. How do we reconcile Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace, with the angel's announcement of peace to the shepherds? After all, this is where the concept comes from. So if you would turn from the Gospel of Matthew, turn quickly to the right, and find your way to Luke chapter 2, and let's see it, and we'll close with a reflection on Christmas and devotion. And what was this peace that is made mention of in Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, draw your eyes at verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, I want you to notice something here. The angels are not wishing an abstract peace. Christmas peace, you know, or colloquially, you know, say peace out. You know, it's not, it's, this isn't just an abstract, you know, peace. You know, have the presence of peace this season. It is not said with the, the shallow intent of our culture in its slogans and signs and, and, and Instagram posts of peace. It is an announcement that true and lasting peace will come on earth in the hearts of those who are redeemed in Christ. Those through faith who have become sons of God. For those who remain outside of him, the earth and all their lives will remain in a state of disorder, strife, and chaos. On earth among men with whom he is pleased. Notice the peace is with those who God is pleased with. The peace of God extends anthropos udach isios, the, the men of good pleasure. Doc, eos, uh, men of good pleasure. It's a technical phrase in the first century that is used for uh, Judaism, for Israel, for God's elect. Those whom God has poured his peace or his favor on. In this context, God's elect would be the God-fearers are mentioned here in front of you draw your eyes at verses 50 through 53 in Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 just before Luke chapter 2 to give you the context there you see in 50 through 53 filling the hungry his help to his servant Israel in, in, in remembrance of his mercy as his, as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever this is for the people for his people those who are coming to him will have this peace Thus, to argue that the term should be seen broadly, abstractly, universally, in light of 2.11, it fails to note its technical force. It fails to note the difference between those whom Jesus comes for and those who have the benefits of his coming, those who have been redeemed by him and have received his peace. Notice who are the men with whom he is pleased. These are his disciples. Those are his redeemed. The angel could not have been announcing a peace on earth, Uh, In some broad sense, we've, we've already noted Herod's slaughter of the innocent children, the flight of the parents to Egypt, the oppressive census that's driving them away from homes and businesses, the beheading of John the Baptist, the numerous confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, ultimately pinnacling on the cross where he gives his life. And that brings us to communion this morning. If you would open the top of your cups, we have this piece of bread that symbolizes his body. And as we have this symbol before us we're reminded this picture is a picture that is the antithesis of peace he was broken for us he was crushed for us they had war on him fallen humanity killed killed the sacrifice that was given it, 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 the government the government crushed the prince of peace And, of course, we give thanks that 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 was the eternal plan of God, for in this, we deserve to be broken, but he's doing it for us. Let us eat. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place. Let us take the cup. In Scripture, cups are uh, uh, receptacles of wrath. We see in the book of Revelation, the cups, the bowls that are poured out in wrath. Jesus takes this cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This this cup is the cup that he will drink. He will drink the wrath for us in order that we can be redeemed. Let us drink together, church. When we take communion, Jesus said to do this as often as you gather, which is why we do it every Lord's Day. When we take communion, we're being reminded of what he has done for us, broken and bled out for us, we're being reminded that this is a gift that we can't earn, that we can't do. Here this morning you have the call you know, to say he's dividing and are you in and are you out? And you know, look, if it were on me to decide which side I would be on, I would be doomed. But he is the one who rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and places us in the kingdom of light. And so with this picture before us of him being broken and him bleeding out, it reminds us to cry out to him. Lord, created me a clean heart. Lord, draw me in repentance. Lord, I am prone to wander. I need you as my shepherd to guide me, to lead me, to be my everything. Let's sing some songs of worship to him in response to hearing his word in the gospel. As you sing, I encourage you to meditate on the words as our sister leads us and also meditate on the word of God that has been read and preached to you this morning and to contemplate what have you been living for? What peace have you been seeking and have you found peace in him? Are you among his people with whom he is pleased? And if there's any doubt in your mind this morning, cry out to him. Seek his forgiveness and find life in him. Let's pray and then we'll stand in a time of song. Father, we thank you for sending the Son for us. That we, children of darkness, could be made sons and daughters of the light. Oh God, receive these songs of worship as we respond To the ministry of communion and the ministry of the word lord we pray that you would be doing a work within us that we would uh, leave this day different than the way in which we came and lord that you would work through the ministry of your spirit to have your way with us in christ's name i pray amen